we, we live at a frantic pace, filled with anxiety, and little time to build friendships through our homes. First Peter addresses these things. We live in a time when we're bombarded with news and fear-mongering. I mean, look at the hype just in our little locality about what the ice is going to do to our area, right? Um, we get headlines delivered to our phones, clickbait headlines. We're just presented the extremes of things on either side. We live in a day that is very polarized, obviously. And it seems like whether it's through our televisions, our computer monitors, or our phones, or even if you still get the paper, right? <laughs> that there is an amplifying of what, is, what the world thinks you need to pay attention to. Really, it's a fed panic. And it's a worldly way of looking at the world. Breaking news all the time, right? A little ticker at the bottom of your screen. Alerts on your phone. What happens is you can become very fearful. Or you can become very uh, self-focused. And what happens is, is you stop with the polarizing views, etc. here. You stop thinking about people as people. As people made in the image of God. You might put up more walls than build a bigger table. You might be more tempted to not share your life, have little relationships because the world's so crazy. Can you trust anybody? So you might not be able to trust people, certainly that you don't know. You might limit your get-together and you might limit how you try to get to know people. And the church can't be like that, can it? That's a world seeping into the church. It's not the church being who the church needs to be in the power of Jesus. And if the church is walking in the flesh instead of by the Spirit, it becomes not a beacon of welcoming hope, but just like the world of hopelessness and selfishness and waltz. Does anybody know this better than the Apostle Peter? He walked down that wrong road himself with Jews and Gentiles. And he presents before us the way of Christ and the way of joy and the way of walking in the race and walking in grace that I'd like you to see from our text this morning that Rowan read. This passage here, chapter 4, um, really goes through chapter seven, uh, verse 7 through 19, and there are ten commands. He's given us all the beauty of what God has, has, has poured out on us. And now he's saying, now pour out in this way. Obey. Out of the truth you received, out of the goodness of God that you've received and enjoyed, now obey. Now walk in it. Now walk in the ways of Jesus. And here's what the Word of God to us through Peter commands us to remember as we live at the end of the age. I'd like to direct your attention to verse 7 where Peter says this. In a context of suffering and persecution, he says, but the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch to prayer. He says, the end, the goal that all of history is moving toward is coming. It's just around the corner. It's a word that James uses where he pictures the judge of all the earth standing at the door with his hand on the doorknob ready to open the door to the next panel 
of history. And Peter says, the end of all things is very near. It is at hand. Now, what would you think Peter would say on behalf of that? All right, bunker down, right? All right, dig down deeper. Protect yourself, cover yourself. But the opposite. He says, I want you to do three simple things in our passage this morning, verses 7 through 9. Three very simple things. Knowing that the end of the world is coming, I want you to do three simple things. First, he wants us to understand that the captain is guiding the ship through the storm to the harbor. The captain is guiding the ship through the storm to the harbor. Look what he says. The end of all things is at hand. Okay, now what? Well, be clear-headed. Be therefore sober. Be clear-headed. Clear thinking. Now, how does a Christian have clear thinking? A Christian has clear thinking as he renews his mind on what the Word of God says about what's going on in the world and not the headlines, right? A, 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 a Christian understands that God is in charge of the ship and he is guiding the ship to a destined destination. And so Peter is telling us the captain is guiding the ship through the storm of the harbor and therefore, in light of that, be clear-headed. Don't be consumed by fright and fear and, and anxiety and worry and, and bombarding of information. He says, be clear-headed and then be alert. Be alert. So read your newspaper. But put it in relation to what the Word of God says. And the truth underneath of that, that God is in control and He is on the throne. The Lord reigns, we read in Psalm 99 this morning, Psalm 99 verse 1, let the people tremble. That's what we need to tremble about. That God is still in charge here. And so when you know the end of the world is coming, here's what you do. You're clear-headed, you're alert, and notice what He says. To pray. Watch to prayer. How can you pray... How can you be alert unless you understand that the captain is guiding this ship through the storm to the harbor? You can speak to the captain who's in control of all of this. That's what the psalmists do all the time, don't they? There are circumstances of life. They're taking these, they're trying to process it, and in doing so, they take it to the Lord, right? They don't wrap themselves in worry and fear. They're taking it to the Lord and they're expressing their hearts to the Lord. And God does a work as they take that step of faith. God does a work in steadying their hearts, instilling their hearts and weaning them off of the fears of this life and bringing them closer to the heart and chest of the Father. Now, some of our responses to all the stuff that's going on in the world is just to mm -hmm, do nothing. And that's not what this, what Peter tells us to do. Let me give you an example of someone who decided to do nothing. It was actually kind of refreshing. It was the defining moment of Stanislav Petrov's life. The moment he decided to do nothing. He was a Soviet military officer, and he was just a few hours into his shift when the alarm started going off all around him, blaring out warning of intercontinental missiles that had, supposed, had, that had been launched from an American base against the Soviets. And the alarm turned out to be an error. And what he did was this. Nothing. And here's why. 
While many military duty officers might have jumped to take defensive measures, and that was something he felt he might do, this is during one of the most tense periods of the Cold War, and Russia was living in constant fear and anticipation of a U.S. attack because of their provocations, etc., the Soviets' provocations. Before he took immediate defensive action, he sought clarity on the reality of the situation. He took five nerve-wracking minutes, he describes them, He saw electronic maps, screens flashing. He has a phone in one hand. He has an intercom in the other. He's trying to absorb all kinds of streams of incoming information. And he decided right there and then that the launch reports were probably a false alarm. He was later reprimanded for not immediately reacting to the situation beforehand, but I'm sure you can have sympathy with him, right? And glad he didn't react. He defended his inaction. He pointed out the alert system had been rushed to use and was likely inaccurate. And he said, we're wise with the computers. Here's a man that was not ruled by, by fear, and he decided to do nothing. All right, that's an example of a man who I'm assuming didn't know the Lord Jesus. But here is what the Word of God says for us who do know Jesus and do know His Word and do know the God who has given us all in Christ. It's not by doing nothing. It's by doing this. Be clear-headed. Renew your mind with the Word of God. Be alert. And understand the opportunities the devil uses to give you, uh, to deceive you into fear and to give you lies about God. And then turn your heart to prayer. Turn your heart to prayer. So the way we're going to do that is understand the captain is guiding the ship through the storm to the harbor. And think about this, folks. He's guided the ship thus far, hasn't he? I'm, we can talk about creation and fall and what he's done in Christ and redemption, what he's doing through his church and will do in the future and future events, etc. He's guided the ship this far. He's got a pretty good track record, doesn't he? He doesn't have a year of failure yet. And we can look at it in general terms and agree with that. But friends, let's make it a little personal. How did you get to this point today? How has the Lord guided you and worked in your life to get you to this point today. Now only you can answer that question because you know the circumstances and stories of how God has worked. But let's answer that question here with our church as a whole, right? In the 60s, some people prayed that God would begin a church here in South Hope. Some people sitting in this congregation here this morning poured out their heart to God God led them to a spot. They claimed that spot for Jesus. And out of that, through various men, God had brought along to care for for the church. And then through men like Pastor Finnemore, through Glen Cove Bible College and beyond, God built a wonderful foundation. And we're in 2020 today, sitting together in a room with a 100 or so people because of God's wonderful grace to us. Built a wonderful foundation that we're still building on, right? Why is that true? Because the captain is guiding the ship to the harbor. And people have acted in faith on that truth, that Jesus said, I will build my church. God is behind it all. And the glorious thing about this, that the end of the world is coming, we get to participate with what God is doing. So we don't need to panic. So let's build on that foundation. Hey, don't cash in your stocks yet. All right? 
Let's invest in the glory of God because the end is coming. Let's invest in the time we have, redeem the time. And so when you find yourself in a state of worry and trending into a frantic attitude, time to slow down. It's time to turn off the news probably. Put the phone on the shelf, whatever it is. Put the fire in the wood or the, the newspaper in the wood stove. Reorient your mind that the captain is driving the ship to his appointed end goal and walk in a prayer relationship with him. What if we prayed as much as we worried? Right? How many of your worries change things? Let's stop the fear and let's start the talk to the Lord. The captain is guiding the ship through the storm to the harbor. That's what he's telling us in verse 7. And then he says, well, that sounds like a battle mode for the end. Be alert, right? Be in prayer. What does that look like? An alert prayer life. Trusting the Lord. That goes to battle. What does that battle look like? Well, this is where the wisdom of God confounds the foolishness of men. And it's why the wisdom of God sounds like foolishness. Because he said, all right, the end of the world is coming. Love one another. Look what he says in verse 8. And above all things. So wherever you have prioritized setting yourself aside for the good of others, right there Peter says, bump that up about 20 levels. Above all, right? Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. Here he's talking about the believers, the church of Jesus Christ, right? The local church. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. That word charity is the word uh, for love. And we have all kinds of ideas about love. Um, the world thinks of it as a feeling. And so when you don't have that feeling, then uh, you must not love anymore. But love is a choice. It is a setting aside scripturally from Genesis to Revelation by the example of God to us. It is a setting aside of our own self-interest for the good and glory of God and others. That's what love is. And what he wants us to see is this. If we're going to set ourselves aside and serve the good of others, we must understand how well we have been cared for by our God. And the captain is not just guiding the ship through the storm of the harbor. He's got people on that ship, doesn't he? And those people on that ship are people he has pulled out of the stormy waters in relation to him. And he has not just pulled them out of the stormy waters so they can sit on the deck and say, yes, we're pulled out. But to say, yes, we're pulled out so that we can pull others out of the sea. And that's what the second part here in verse 8 is. Above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Above all, remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. If I do this, if I do this, if I do this, if I do this, if I, uh, uh, people are really impressed by this, and I have not love, it is zilch, right? It's nothing. It's nothing, and that's what he wants us to understand above all. And notice he describes this kind of love, a fervent charity. Now, a fervent charity, you might hear that word and think like a, like a passionate, like a fervent, like I'm really into it. And that's part of it. But the passion comes through an act of obedience. The, 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 when we obey God in faith, the passion might follow. And sometimes we wait till that feeling's there, right? But that word fervent actually means this. It's a picture of an athlete 
whose muscles are taut and tensed and flexed to do an activity. You can think of the um, the hundred meters and the uh, the sprinters in the Olympics as they're on the on the starting line. Every muscle is tense. They're ready to go here, and that's the idea. Have a have a love that is that is tense. That is that is ready to move into action. Now, the lie that the world tells us about love is it's a feeling, and the other lie that the world and the devil tell us is that love is just a general thing. We hear love so much, it's just a general thing, right? Um, uh, I I love a certain color. I love this. But love in the Bible is an action. It's an action. Someone said, let none pretend that they love the brethren in general. There is a a specific, tangible way that, that the New Testament beats this drum over and over and says, don't just say you have love, you need to demonstrate it. For God so loved the world that what? He gave, right? But God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet or still sinners, Christ, what? Said, I love you? Died for us. Demonstrated. Okay? Um, John, in his letter, says, don't just say you love people. If you got a person in need, go meet that need. Serve those people, right? And so that we can believe the lie that we just love everybody here, but unless we are specifically serving others, then it is nothing. Now notice what he says at the end of verse 8, for fervent charity, or for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. James uses that phrase too, and it's actually found in Proverbs 10, 12, where the, where Solomon says, hatred Stirs up strife, but love, I'm paraphrasing here, covers a multitude of sins. So that's the context where that phrase is from. And what, what, what Solomon is saying as he writes Proverbs 10, 12, that hatred stirs up strife is this, that you can be assured that according to the word of God, if there is backbiting, if there is relational strife, it is because there is satanic Hatred, whether we want to admit that or not, not godly love. Um, give you an illustration here. One, one, one pastor was sharing about um, uh, his kid, five-year-old Andrew. He said they were visiting a neighbor, and he pulled out his kinder, the five-year-old Andrew pulled out his kindergarten class picture, and he immediately began describing each classmate. This is Robert. He hits everyone. This is Stephen. He never listens to the teacher. This is Mark. He chases us and he's really noisy. Then he points to his own picture and Andrew says, and this is me. I'm just sitting here minding my own business. <laughs> right? It, it, it's, it's, that's not a heart that is acting in love toward people, right? He has categorized people according to the things that really bug him about those people, right? But what does the Word of God say in 1 Peter chapter 2? That we have been shown mercy, we have been shown grace, we have been shown God's goodness to show grace. We've been blessed to be a blessing. And so Peter will say this in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So you are able to care well and set yourself aside for the good of others because... God has cared well for you. 
which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We're shown grace to show grace. And that's the only way we're going to be able to follow this command. And first Peter chapter two and verse eight, above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. What does it mean that charity shall cover the multitude of sins? Well, if hatred stirs up strife, then love has a way of diffusing. There's a forgiving spirit. It doesn't mean we're just wiping sins under the rug. And the Bible tells us proper ways to deal with sin. But what it is telling us is that when we have an attitude of God's grace and forgiveness that's come to us, now we can navigate with broken, messy people and not hold things against them or over them. Um, In her book, author Susan Phillips writes about the importance of maintaining friendships, especially in old age. And she talks about um, end-of-life care and a particular nurse in Australia, Bronnie Ware, who works with people who have chosen to end their life uh, at the end of their days uh, in their own homes. And she asked her patients whether they had regrets as they approached death. And do you know what the top five regret people mentioned was at the end of their lives? Letting relationships lapse. And she writes that many of her patients had, quote, become so caught up in their own lives that they let golden relationships slip by over the years. There were many deep regrets about not giving friendships the time and effort they deserved. Everyone misses their friends when they are dying. You know, our culture doesn't give us very good uh, instruction or very wise instruction about maintaining friendships, but the Word of God does, doesn't it? It says to have this 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 attitude and this action of love that that is is, is not holding things against people, but is this love is covering a multitude of sins and brokenness and messiness. What does it mean? Well, it means to put others ahead of you. you want to know a little bit further? Read Philippians two, the first three verses. Put others' interests above yours. And one of the ways we could illustrate this is a marriage, right? In your marriage. Husbands and wives, your job is to make the other one be built up, right? Your job is to make the other person look good, right? And by that, I mean you're building them up. You're not tearing them down. Uh, you, as a believer of Jesus Christ, are a person who is called to be a restorer, not a tearing down of people. You are an agent of reconciling power, Second Corinthians 5 tells us. You're a disciple. You lead your family. You teach others in this way. You're patiently rejoicing in, as you interact with the lives of others. And think about a father who sees first steps of his toddler, right? And he rejoices in that. That toddler is, is a little stumbly, a little teetery here, but he sees the first steps of his toddler and he's excited about that, right? And so what is he going to do? He's just going to let that toddler the rest of his life up to adulthood just be one who just stumbles, right? No, he's going to lead him to become more and more steady. He'll be able to stand and grow on his own. And so that's what Peter is saying here. We need to have an attitude here of, of grace that, that, that covers, uh, uh, our, our rough edges here and covers, covers other people's rough edges here so that we see their good and we help them grow. You might ask yourself, okay, well, what's the premier way to love the brethren and extend your circles of relationship for the kingdom of God? 
Well, it's to stop building bigger walls and start building bigger tables. Look what he says in verse 9. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. The idea, the word of hospitality comes from a word that means lover of strangers. Most of the time, hospitality is practiced in the scriptures. You can see this in Genesis and throughout the scriptures, in the New Testament as well, in the early church. It is through table fellowship. It is through inviting other people into your life. It is sharing your life with others. And the third thing we need to understand is if the captain, he is guiding the ship through the storm, and we can trust him, And we need to remember that he's pulled us out of the sea so that we can work his grace into the lives of others that he's worked into us. And the third thing is this, that he has shared everything with us. He has given everything to the extent of his own life, even death on a cross, Philippians 2 says, so that we can see that multiplied, so we can share that with others. So showing hospitality, it's the idea of a, and this is something that is not natural for us, is it? Loving strangers. Hi, I, my name is Jamie and I love strangers. Um, that's not something that I naturally do, is it? Lover of strangers and doing, verse 9 tells us, is the idea here, loving strangers and doing what you can to turn strangers into friends, namely through the vehicle of hospitality, which is namely inviting them into your home. Now think about the people that Peter is writing to. What does he call them in verse 1 of chapter 1? Strangers and exiles, people who probably had things taken away, people who are being marginalized and ostracized by society, society, living in proverbial Babylon where things weren't easy, where it wasn't a great idea for your own self-preservation to draw people into you, to put a mark on yourself and say, I'm a believer and I'm inviting other people into my life and in my home. That's who he's writing to. And so you can imagine why he has to say, use hospitality one to another without what? Rumbling. You can see some of the things and and reasons and arguments they would say, but, uh," right? What about us? Here's the command to obey. Open your life and home to other people and do this without complaining. Now, let's let's think through this very practically. That very idea scares some of you to death, right? Let's just be honest. That's frightening. Oh, my house, I don't have this. Right? And that is because we are believing a lie. And a lie, you replace that word hospitality in your mind with the word entertaining. And hospitality is opening up your life to others. And because God sees us and God has given us what he has given us and we are to be a good steward of that, that frees me now to be a good steward and invite people to my home and invite people into my life. He says without grumbling. Think of somebody in, in Scripture who grumbled about hospitality. Oh, this shouldn't take this much work, right? Remember Martha? Remember Martha? Okay, what are the things on your checklist here, the things that you're automatically in your mind saying, I can't invite someone I don't know into my home because of this, 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 and this. Now take that this, this, and this and put right next to it without grumbling. And practice hospitality. Okay, now you're faced with a choice, right? What am I going to do with that? 
Am I going to obey God in grace? Am I going to obey God? As Galatians 5, we have a faith. Galatians 5 says we have a faith that works itself out in love. What better way to love than, he says here in verse 9, use hospitality one to another without grudging. Max Lucado says, long before the church had pulpits and baptistries, she had kitchens and dinner tables. Even a casual reading of the New Testament unveils the house as the primary tool of the church. Primary gathering place of the church was the home. They considered the genius of God's plan. The first generation of Christians was a tinderbox of contrasting cultures and backgrounds. At least 15 different nationalities heard Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Jews stood next to Gentiles. Men worshipped with women. Slaves and masters alike sought after Christ. Can people of such varied backgrounds and cultures get along with each other? We wonder the same thing today. Can blacks live in peace with whites? Can Democrats get together, get, get along with, with Republicans? Can a Christian family carry on a civil friendship with the Muslim couple down the street? Can divergent people get along? The early church did. Without the aid of all these things that we think are important. They did so through the clearest of messages, the cross, and the simplest of tools, the home. Not everyone can serve in a foreign land, lead a relief effort, or volunteer at the downtown soup kitchen. But who can't be hospitable? Do you have a front door? A table? Chairs? Bread and meat for sandwiches? Congratulations. You just qualified to serve in the most ancient of ministries, hospitality. You see, we're in a sanctuary and there's nothing wrong with that this morning. But a sanctuary also can't do what a dinner table can do. Right? You're all looking at me this way. You're not even seeing each other's faces. I'm seeing all your faces. You have to look at mine. But something holy happens also around a dinner table. Just like something holy come, happens when God's people gather in a sanctuary. You're looking at the backs of people's heads. Around the table, you're going to see people's faces. The auditorium, right now I'm the only one speaking. At the table, at least if you're at my table, everybody's yelling. <laughs> Church services are on the clock. Some of you are itching to get out of here at noon. Around the table, there's time to talk. Hospitality opens the door to uncommon community, Lucato says. It's no accident The hospitality and hospital come from the same Latin word, for they both lead to the same result, healing. When you open your door to someone, you're sending this message, you matter to me and to God. You may think you're saying, come over for a visit, but what your guest here is, is, I'm worth the effort. How many of you have been to a restaurant 15 minutes or 20 minutes or half an hour or a store before it closes? Right? You walk in the door and you can tell that you really are not welcome there. <laughs> you are a bother to their life. Right? Oh, it says open on the door and it has the hours right. But you know in reality, you are an impediment to the lifestyle right now that they are wanting, right? There's not an eagerness to serve. What are they really saying? Your value is not worth the time and effort to us, right? Right. That's why Chick-fil-A does so well, because of their customer service. Or we're only doing this because we have to. That's legalism, right? 
missing the beauty and goodness and grace of God that motivates us, right? Think about the older brother in Luke 15 in the parable, the prodigal son. Who's the one that didn't want to have the hospitality of the younger brother? The older brother. And Jesus is using him as an illustration. You read the beginning of Luke 15 of the scribes and Pharisees. Religiosity, right? Is very opposed to it. I'll give you an example of a woman who has won the Christ through hospitality. At the age of 36, Rosario Champagne Butterfield was a tenured professor in the Center for Women's Study at Syracuse University. Rosario and her lesbian partner were members of a Unitarian Universalist church. Rosario was the coordinator of what is called the Welcoming Committee, the Gay and Lesbian Advocacy Group. Up to this point in her life, Rosario said the only Christians she knew were, quote, intellectually impaired. They were the kind of people who sent me hate mail or people who carried signs of gay pride marches that read, God hates gays. But her negative image of Christians would radically change when she met a local pastor named Ken and his wife, Floyd. Eventually, that friendship led to her conversion to Christ. But here's how Rosario described that first encounter with authentic Christians. I remember being conscious of my butch haircut and the gay and pro-choice bumper stickers on my car. I remember awkwardly greeting my host at the door and pulling out of my bag two gifts, a bottle of good red wine and a box of strong tea. I wanted to get to know these people, but not at the expense of compromising my moral standards. My lesbian identity and culture and its values mattered a lot to me. I came to my culture and its values through life experience, but also through much research and deep thinking. I liked Ken and Floyd immediately because they seemed sensitive to that. During the meal, I remember holding my breath and waiting to be punched in the stomach with something grossly offensive. I believed at this time in my life that God was dead and that if he ever was alive, the fact of poverty, violence, racism, sexism, homophobia, and war was proof that he didn't care about his creation. I believed that religion was, as Marx wrote, the opiate of the masses. But Ken's God seemed alive, three-dimensional and wise, if firm. And Ken and Floyd were anything but intellectually impaired. Ken and Floyd did something at the meal that has a long Christian history. They invited the stranger in. Not to scapegoat me, but to listen and to learn and to speak. We didn't debate worldview. They were willing to walk the long journey to me in Christ's compassion. During our meal, they didn't share the gospel with me. After a meal, they didn't invite me to church. Because of these glaring omissions to the Christian script, as they had come to know it, when the evening ended and Pastor Ken said he wanted to stay in touch, I knew that it was truly safe to accept his open hand. Since the beginning, the journey on which the Lord has taken me has been a great adventure, and the simple meal in a pastor's home was the first leg of this journey. Before I ever stepped foot in the church, I spent two years meeting with Ken and Floyd and on and off studying Scripture. And my heart, Ken knew at the time that I couldn't come to church. It would have been too weird for me. So Ken brought Jesus to me. She's a pastor's life today. Um, and I'm not saying that we don't need to share the gospel of people at the first front. But you need to say we need to participate with the Holy Spirit. And we need to build trust in people. And hospitality is one way to do that. You see, nothing we have belongs to us. We're stewards. If, but we've grown up in a culture that says, well, things are hard to come by, and I worked hard, and this is mine. Right? But it's not. It's not. There's not one thing you have 
that belongs to you. It was given. And it's owned by Jesus Christ. And when we start to think it's all ours, then we start to put up the walls about sharing our lives. Now here's the thing. We can know this is right, but never do anything about it, right? During uh, a difficult time in the South, there was an African-American church leader who told this story. He said it was his third year with the ministry and he got a call from uh, a, a, a Christian leader asking him to go to lunch with them. This guy was a white guy. And he says that we're sitting down to eat. All of a sudden, this guy starts crying. He says that God had blessed him. His children were healthy. He was known throughout the country. But he said, I have a hard time sleeping through the night. And this African-American church leader said, why is he telling me this? I'm, I'm not a therapist. And the man said, I just came back from the annual conference from our denomination on the other side of the country. And a bunch of us got together to discuss reconciliation and, and cross-cultural ministry. And usually when black leaders come in the meeting, we make them feel right at home and let them be part of the decision-making process. But to be honest with you, decisions were made before they ever get there. He said, I'm used to hearing jokes and use of the N-word. But he said, but this time when jokes are going on and people are saying things, it didn't sound right to me. He said, how can I get over this? How can we be friends? And here is this black American church leader's answer. He said, do you like football? He seemed a little puzzled, but said, yes, I do. I said, I do too. He said, I used to coach high school and college ball, and I have a lot of friends who play pro. I love a good game, and I love the cookout. So here's what we do. I need to get to know you, and you need to get to know me. Why don't you come over to my house? I was the only black suburb in my suburban neighborhood at the time. He said, bring your wife and meet my wife, and we'll just sit and talk and get to know each other. I'll barbecue some steaks, and let's start there. And he said, you want me to come to my, you, you want me to come to your house? And this African American black church leader said this. Yes, if you want me to sit here and clear your conscience for all the garbage you did, I can't do that. Friendship isn't cheap. It takes time and commitment. He gave him his phone number and told him to give him a call. He says, I never heard from him again. Right? So there was a certain step the man was willing to go, but not Go further. And I want us to remind ourselves of this. When you look at the history of Israel, God gave so many things to Israel, didn't he? What did they do with it? They didn't use them for his purposes. And what did he end up doing with those things? They ended up being taken away and Israel was carried off to a foreign land. They believed the lie that said God's purposes are not as important as my control, right? I want to close with this story. David Livingston. He served in Africa from 1840 until his death in 1873. And he wanted to travel to the uncharted lands of Central Africa to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. On one occasion... This explorer and missionary arrived at the edge of a large territory that was ruled by a tribal chieftain known throughout that territory. And the tradition of that land was this. The chief would come out to meet him there. Livingston could only go forward into that territory after they made an exchange. And the, and the, and the, the terms were this. 
The chief would be able to choose any item of Livingston's personal property that caught his eye and keep it for himself, and then he'd give the missionary something else of his own in return. Livingston was an explorer in Africa, the jungle, so he had few possessions with him. But at their encounter, he took his possessions and he spread them out on the ground. His clothes, his books, his watch, and even the goat that he had taken along to provide him some milk along the way. He had um, stomach problems, so he couldn't drink the water there in Africa. And to his dismay, what did the chief set his eyes upon but the goat? And he took the goat, and in his return, he gave him this intricately carved walking stick. And so Livingston was just devastated, disappointed by that. And he began to gripe to God about what he viewed as a stupid walking cane that he got for his precious goat. It couldn't compare to the goat that had kept him healthy. And then one of the local men told him this about that walking cane. That's not a walking cane. That's the king's very own scepter. And with it, you will have authority and entrance to every village in this region. The king has honored you greatly. And the man was right. And it was through that that God opened Central Africa up to Livingston and other evangelists after wave of a wave of the gospel moved. And sometimes in our disappointment over what we don't have, we don't understand the things that God takes away from us. He gives us something better. And hospitality is one of those things. Where we open our hearts and are vulnerable. And God gives us so many wonderful things treasured friendships, a building up of his kingdom. And so let's summarize what Peter's commanded us here to obey. Since the captain is guiding the ship to the end, we can be alert, clear thinking, and people who always have our prayer walkie-talkie on. Since he's pulled us out of the sea, we can walk in love and build others up around us in the same grace that he has lavished upon us. And since the captain has shared everything with us so that we can share everything he's given us, we can throw open our doors and turn strangers into friends without grumbling as we give our homes and our lives to the Lord to share with others. In the last eight years, there are 90 different people who are new here. As I looked at the folks who attend, how many of them do you know well? How will that change How have they met and got married? What are the names of their children? What did they retire from? What are their grandkids? What are their favorite foods and hobbies? What are they praying for God to do? What verse has God pressed deep into their life and their story? What are the burdens of their hearts and the names of the loved ones they're praying to come to Christ? Their salvation stories and how they came to the Lord. And then your unbelieving neighbor. Someone said, we get to pick our neighbors and in some sense get to pick our enemies, but we don't get to pick our neighbor, excuse me, we get to pick our friends and in some sense our neighbor, or, uh, you know what I'm saying, our enemies, but not our neighbors. We don't get to pick our neighbors. Right? How will your own heart's status quo, default mode, change through this text? And the word of God building you up. Can I challenge you? In the next month, will you have two people, two families that you don't know very well over to your house and start to see that change? Okay, one. 
right? One month, can you do that? And see the lives of people? Because what you see as you intersect with other people is what Jesus said at the end of Matthew 24. When did you see, when did we see you thirsty and hungry? Right? When we do it for other people, Jesus says, you did it unto me. So what if you saw every person in this room as a representative of Jesus Christ? How would that then change the way you related and the way you pressed in and got past my and your introversion and love people? Let's pray. Lord, these are very simple verses this morning. And so there's not much we need to interpret. But there is much that by God's grace we need to obey. Lord, you have been so good to us. We can trust you as you guide the ship and we can trust you while we're on the ship. You've called us to be ministers of reconciliation with your love. And not brittle, but flexible, tender, pressing into the lives of others. We all have personalities and backgrounds and cultures that are going to fight against this. I know I do. Lord, help us to take steps of faith and obey you in these ways. They're simple. And we thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So you know the end of the world's coming. What are you going to do? Martin Luther said that if I knew the end of the world was coming tomorrow, I would still plant my apple tree. And the apple tree here in this scripture is love the brethren with a fervent heart. Above all things, because love covers a multitude of sins. Watch and pray. Be alert. And be clear thinking and use hospitality one to another without grumbling. Let's look at our verse here as we close that anchors this passage. 1 Peter 5. 10 and 11 anchors this whole book. This is what Peter wants us to to steer our hearts toward. He says this together. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you, to whom be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.